This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. Cerebris goes big. IBM goes open. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with HPC Wire. I'm Addison Snell, joined again by Tiffany Trader. Tiffany, this week in HPC, we're going to pick up some of the news from the Hot Chips Conference that we both previously visited. One of the interesting companies a lot of people were talking about, it's called Cerebris, which is doing a going the other way from chiplets and doing a big chip. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there's a lot of cool stuff at Hot Chips. Uh, one of the most popular uh, things there, one of the most popular presentations, I think, uh, was from Cerebra Systems. So they have like, they have gone big. They have gone wafer scale. They have uh, come out with uh, maybe the, the largest chip, wafer, this wafer scale chip. So essentially they take a 300 millimeter wafer working with a TSMC 16 nanometer node, and they, they carve out the, the largest possible square out of that. And it has 40,000 cores and 1.2 trillion transistors. Uh, the the square, this this big square that's uh, bigger than a um, you know a, a Mac uh, keyboard. Um, it has uh, 84 processing tiles, and these tiles are connected across the scribe lines by thousands of links, so that the whole thing can effectively function as one device. And they're targeting uh, AI workloads specifically with it. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So they say that the chip will be 100 to 1,000 times faster than the the tar- current top GPU, which are the Nvidia's um, V V100, and the, the, this chip, which is 46,225 square millimeters, and for comparison, um, the largest Nvidia chip is 815 square. Millimeters, so that's a 50. That's a 57x larger. So this this big wafer scale chip has 400,000 uh, sparse linear algebra cores. They their acronym is SLA SLA cores, and they are designed for sparse workloads like a deep learning and neural networks. So not wasting uh, multiplies on on zeros. Then um, the cores use a specialized tensor processing engine. And each core performs both control processing and data processing. It's funny to me, you mentioned the 46,000 and some square millimeters. And and I thought about that, a 300 millimeter uh, wafer. Well, if you made a square that was 300 millimeters on the diagonal, that should be 45,000 square millimeters, not 46,000 and some. So it seems to me that if their area is right, it's not actually a 300 millimeter chip, which is about a 11.8 inches, but rather a true 12 inch wafer, uh, which would be a little larger than that. So uh, it's it's interesting because it might be a a non-standard 12 inch wafer, but uh, either way, it's, it's a huge chip. And it's interesting to start thinking about how this would be incorporated into a server designing something around that because it's it's not this small chip right you've got to build a chassis with with that huge square in mind yeah that's that's exactly right so you know i think before maybe we get into some of the more technical details is just just to folks um maybe a lot of you have heard of cerebrus by now but uh if you haven't a lot of the a lot of the course core team from cerebrus they they come. They hail from C Micro, which uh, created the Atom-based microserver over a decade ago. I think they came up and started up in uh, 2017. C Micro, of course, was acquired by AMD in um, 2012. 
uh, for 355 million. So that's who who the core part of this team is. And then they started developing this in 2015. And their name is Cerebra Systems. So the company Cerebra Systems, they emphasize that they are a systems company. Uh, and one of the, the things that they'll, they, they expect to be telling us more about the, the full system that they're designing with, so they're not going to be, I don't think they're going to be, you know, pushing the, the chips out by themselves. They're building a system around this. And we ex- they said that they expect to announce more about that uh, at Supercomputing. And they'll have some, um, the CEO, Andrew Feldman, who was also the CEO at C-Micro, C- he's one of the founders of this company and, and was one of the founders of that company. Uh, he said to expect um, to, to see more details about the system at Supercomputing super and that they'll have some customers squarely in the HPC um, HPC Supercomputing spaces as well, of course, because we understand how these um, uh, AI chips can help accelerate um, traditional simulations workloads as well. So, I mean, that will be interesting to get some some more details about that. It's been estimated uh, that this chip will use uh, 14 to 15 kilowatts of power, which is a lot, but... Well, it's um, also it's, a large chip. It's yeah, taking yeah, yeah. up so the space not, of a lot more yeah, chips. Right, so it's not so it's not unreasonable if it can really do the AI training work of a uh, hundred or a thousand GPUs or even a hundred, you know, even just taking the low end figure, that certainly wouldn't be unreasonable. So as a as a point of comparison, just uh, the DGX two, of course, it's a whole system, but it has a max power draw of ten kilowatts, and um, you know that's sixteen V one hundreds, a couple platinum Xeons, the NV switch, eight infinite band ports, and some storage. But you can you can kind of you get a sense of the the comparisons there. Well, I'll tell you what I like about this approach to the extent that we've seen GPUs as the dominant architectures for AI training right now, and that's led to more GPU-heavy configurations. How do I get more GPUs into a server and then do more of the interconnection between the GPUs without coming out to the host processor, the host processor's memory? This sort of just takes that idea to the extreme and says, well, what if all of those GPUs are just one big chip and uh, essentially just make it it bigger, which is almost... Almost the the same kind of approach that NVIDIA had with the DGX2, treating it like it's one big GPU. I remember NVIDIA calling it that, saying this is the world's largest GPU, although it was really a a server unto itself. This takes that a step further by making it all one big wafer. Now you've got to make a system out of that. So the other specs that you were talking about with how does it interconnect with uh, with uh, the rest of the environment around it from a networking perspective, how do I integrate it into my overall workload? Those are going to be legitimate questions. I think it was right to talk about the the wafer scale chip itself at hot chips, and then we can save the rest of that conversation for supercomputing. But I'm my analyst opinion would be they'll they'll have a lot of people who are at least interested in seeing how it all works. Yeah, and. Exactly. I'm sure there'll be more to say. And I, I just I'll just mention, you know, before you even get to the, the system level, and they do say that they've already been uh clustering these nodes, uh these these you know wafer wafer nodes um with hundred gig, but they they had to overcome these other challenges, the cross die connectivity, which we talked about with the the thousands of, of links and the scribe lines and then yields at 
I mean, that's it's really it's really interesting. I mean, it's really interesting. There's a lot of like technical innovations that they had to do. So for the yield, they um, built in redundancy onto onto the onto the wafer onto the die. Uh, redundancy is your friend when it comes to yield. That's what Sean Sean Lee said. That he's the, the chief architect and another co-founder in his hot chip stock. So um, and it only they only had to build in 1.5 percent of redundancy into the wafer. And then there, if there are, you know are any flaws, um, there's usually at least a couple, right? Um, they can be routed around using the the extra cores and links. Uh, and then there was also, so that was the cross-site connectivity, the yield, and then thermal expansion, you know, the fact that the um, fiberglass PCB is going to expand at a different rate than the silicon. So they had to invent a special connecting material to uh, allow those to connect even when they're not perfectly plumb. And then packaging and cooling, um, in which case they, they created that you can't, you can't pass um, power or cooling, it's too far, you know, by the time it gets to the, the center of the chip. So they had to do all that vertically. So a lot of um, a lot of interesting things um, to look at. And they will also be at the AI Hardware Summit next month that's up in Mountain View at the Computer History Museum, September 17th and 18th. So I think they'll be talking more about it then. And then it uh, looks like um, they expect to have some more disclosures at supercomputing too. That's local for me here in Mountain View, California. So I'll hope to catch up with them there. But you pointed out some of those technical issues. I think it goes beyond that when you start thinking multi-generational. One of the traditional challenges for any type of coprocessor has been maintaining a pace of development that keeps keeps you relevant over multiple generations. If we think back to companies in the HPC space like Cycortex or ClearSpeed, they had products that were attractive at a point in time, but over the course of two, three generations, if you don't maintain a pace of development that keeps up with a company like Intel, you find that that advantage can start to erode away. One of the advantages we've seen with GPUs with NVIDIA is they're already designing at a fast pace driven by the gaming industry, so they have been able to maintain that relevance over a long time frame. Uh, that can be a challenge for any independent coprocessor. So that's another thing that uh, potentially stands in their way, and we'd want to see how they can address that. But nevertheless, I'm interested in learning more. All right, there was a lot more coming out of hot chips uh, other than uh, – just uh, Cerebris, AMD gave a keynote talk where Lisa Su uh, talked again a lot about performance. We've covered AMD a lot recently. Some of the other interesting stuff that caught my eye was coming out of IBM, which talked not only about their newest Power 9 with advanced I.O., but also simultaneously at Hot Chips, they were talking about things like open source of their instruction set architecture and a move to open source there. So we've got a lot of news with IBM right now. Yeah, so they did make some disclosures at Hot Chips around the Power9 Advanced I.O. and um, some of the things going on around that. And then, like you said, they also recently announced that uh, they were contributing the instruction set, the ISA for their Power9 microprocessor, as well as the designs for the OpenCAPI interface. That's the Open Coherent Accelerator Processor interface that's now in the, well, the 4.0 is coming out um, soon, so I, it's the fourth generation of CAPI and kind of like the second generation of Open CAPI since Open CAPI started, I believe, with 3.0. Uh, and then as also their open memory interface, which is uh, kind of new, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, more about that. But they're donating all of those to the, or, or contributing, I should say, all of those to the Linux Foundation. And IBM also reported that the Open Power Foundation would become a Linux Foundation uh, entity, um, you know, subject to the Linux Foundation rules. 
Um, so those announcements were actually made somewhat concurrent with uh, hot chips. Um, the Open Power Foundation Summit was going on uh, down in San Diego, um, pretty much like the same same time span, co-located co with the Linux Foundation Open Source Summit. So no coincidence there that they had those events co-located since they're, they're contributing all of those things over. Um, and the move, of course, comes on the heels of IBM's 34, or all these moves come on the heels of IBM's $34 billion acquisition of Red Hat. Um, and when, in talking to the IBM folks and, and, and Ken King, who's a general manager for Open Power, said that it was um, definitely the case that while IBM was already moving in, you know, in the, towards towards more and more openness, um, you know, they did have Open Power and the Open Power Foundation and Open Capi, et cetera, but um, that the Red Hat acquisitions acquisitions spurred further, it further accelerated the efforts to to leverage these open source approaches. Yeah, so there's a lot here to break down with regard to IBM. Going back to the chip itself, this is their latest Power 9 AIO or Advanced IO, which is coming out next year. This builds on their two previous Power 9s. Their Power 9 SO for Scale Out was in 2017, then the Power 9 SU for Scale Up was in 2018. Now this is the Power 9 AIO or Advanced IO that's coming out next year. The interesting thing is when you stack it up, there's not a lot of changes in the, the processing architecture itself, at least none that was evident from the presentation. It's still a 12 or 24 core, 14 nanometer chip. The big advancements from the previous Power 9 uh, SU version is, first of all, a big uh, upgrade in sustained memory bandwidth, which they're now claiming is up to 650 gigabytes a second. That's more than triple what it was previously. And then also an upgrade to OpenCAPI 4.0 from the previous uh, 3.0. Uh, it still has PCIe Gen 4, 48 lanes, which is 192 gigabytes a second of duplex bandwidth. That's If you're counting duplex, that gets up into the terabit range, although it's really only half of that in each direction. But if you think of that as a, in terms of uh, transfers or networking speeds, it, it's actually quite a bit. So they're really emphasizing the, the memory architecture, which includes now uh, their scale out direct attach memory and their scale up buffered memory into a single integrated memory architecture. Then they've got the NVLink, they've got the uh, PCIe uh, uh, Gen 4, so they're, and then uh, OpenCAPI 4.0 as well. They're really emphasizing the, uh, the memory and throughput nature of this newest Power9 chip. Yeah, and, and Cappy has been out, I think, since 2013. So, you know, five, five, six years now. So it's, um, you know, pretty mature. It's just interesting, and in the context of the other interconnect standards that we see out there, like CXL, uh, there's this, um, there's this vision at IBM that the the world isn't going to be all about the best general purpose processor, it's going to be about advancing through specialized silicon. And that's why they're making all of these, these, you know, interfaces um, and, and making them open, you know, they're hoping to uh, accelerate, um, uh, open up opportunities and, and innovation in that space that they can then leverage. Yeah. You reminded me of that from when they announced the previous generation of power nine last year, that the messaging then was really all around that the processor isn't about performance as much as it's about moving data to other components. They're, they're viewing the power nine processor as something that's 
designed to to feed the network and feed the accelerators, which struck me as odd then, and it still strikes me as odd now. Not necessarily wrong, but but strange that at at, at Hot Chips they're talking about their new Power Nine processor, and there's nothing about performance at all, other than a, a brief mention of core count. There's no gigahertz in the talk. There's no flops in the talk. We don't have a good sense of the the compute performance of the chip. Contrast that with AMD, which just talks about nothing but performance, and I'm really left with the sense that that uh, with the power architecture, the performance of the chip is not what they're focusing on. They're focusing on that processor as a as a gateway or throughput machine for other components, particularly NVIDIA GPUs. Yeah, it's definitely that. That's the message, and they they also emphasize, you know, how difficult it is to to design a CPU, to design and manufacture a CPU, and you know, just really in, uh, intense process with all the tape outs. And they they the message at Hot Chips was, you know, let you 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 can design, um, you know, design the accelerator and, and let us worry about the chip and the the I/O. And, and you know, they they were even using the phrase, you know, the plug and play. Let, let you know, trying to design something and plug and play for the accelerator. And certainly, um, this uh, very rich uh, development in the accelerator space right now. All these emerging, all this emerging AI silicon, and I think they see a big market opportunity to to be the thing that connects them. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the, there's a clue there in that plug and play statement. I think combining that with some of the open source moves that they're making, going into the uh, Linux Foundation with open power, and in particular with uh, the opening up of the ISA, the instruction set architecture, to me, those those moves are, are probably aimed at being friendly to the hyperscale market. They want to make it a little easier for a hyperscale company to buy or, or maybe even license the power architecture for their own uh, hyperscale deployments. I, I think that's what IBM probably has in mind. Yep, definitely. I think, you know, just reading, reading between the lines and um, what was, was, what was emphasized, it was, it was definitely more about the, the hyperscale space, um, you know, but not as much emphasis put on performance, which is what you would expect if you were marketing, you know, more to the HPC folks. And this kind of brings us full circle to the conversation that we had um, on the last podcast. You know, there's some question right now with IBM not winning, uh, the core, any of the, the Coral Exascale contracts, and and not getting some, you know, some of the other big prominent um, multi, you know, hundred petaflop system contracts that are out there, and not really talking about HPC that much either, you know, about IBM's um, commitment to HPC right now, and you know, the fact that they were the pivoting to attract more of the hyperscale market, I think, plays into that too. Yeah, exactly. I think they're more on hyperscale and more on AI and not so much on HPC. That's the message we've been getting from them recently. Now, they did get a bump in their HPC revenue last year that I think was a lot of the halo effect from Summit and Sierra going in. Uh, but yeah. but it's it's just interesting that, that we have the company that gave us Summit and Sierra and we're just not hearing a lot about the HPC focus from them right now. And when they do talk about Power 9, they're not talking about it from a performance standpoint, but from an interconnectedness standpoint. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see where this strategy takes them, um, you know, on the on their on the roadmap side and on the opening, you know, opening up all these things to to the to the community. All right, Tiffany, thanks again for another interesting podcast, a lot to sink our teeth into. And thanks to you for tuning in. 
You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.